Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth, Father, and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable In your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our second week looking at this, the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Last week we focused more on the responsibility we have to ask God specifically to forgive us our sins, to confess our sins, to admit our sins and to ask for his forgiveness. This week, we're going to look at uh, the second half, which ties itself to the first half of the fifth petition, which is, as we forgive our debtors. Notice carefully that there is a condition attached to God forgiving us, and that condition is that we forgive others. Jesus here very clearly says that we are not forgiven if we refuse to forgive others the debt that they have toward us. Verse 12, as we also have forgiven, and then verses 14 and 15, for if you do forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Jesus had Peter come and ask the question all of us are wondering about. In Matthew 18, Peter came to him, beginning with verse 21, and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay... His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus adds this statement of the application of this. He says to those listening, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so here we have a parable told that opens up the warning Jesus gives at the end of the Lord's Prayer about forgiveness. We see that it's common for us to be forgiven and then immediately to go around and to be punitive and tight and grasping and angry and greedy to those that have a debt to us. And Jesus says that if we're like this wicked servant who was forgiven and then was punitive to the one that owed him money, he says, my heavenly father will be the same way to you, will also do the same to you. Each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Because you remember at the end of the story, it says that his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And so right away what we think is, what do I owe God? Because God is the Lord in this parable. Well, you know what you owe God, which is holiness and perfect obedience. And so what Jesus is saying to us is, everything you owe God, everything you owe him, will be required of you. And that God will be moved with anger and hand you over to the tortures until you repay what you owe him if you will not be forgiving to those that owe you something. Now, right away, all of us being well-trained Protestants, and particularly those of us that are Reformed, want to say, well, what about grace? And one of the things I'd say in a sort of humorous way is it's very graceful that Jesus warned you here. Don't take this warning for granted. Isn't it sweet that he didn't leave you ignorant about the nature of forgiveness and its importance in your life? And you say, yeah, but it doesn't feel very sweet. And I say, isn't it sweet that Jesus gave you this warning? And you say, but it doesn't seem graceful. And I say, isn't it graceful that Jesus gave you this warning? And you say, but it doesn't feel nice. And I say, that's the one thing you can never accuse Jesus of being is nice. God isn't nice. Jesus isn't nice because nice is pathetic. Nice is a place in France. <laughs> and so here we see the grace of God that God is pleased to tie his mercy to ours, his forgiveness to ours. And he is kind and graceful to tell us that he has tied these things together. And that those who refuse to forgive, his father will not forgive. And those who are of a forgiving heart are themselves forgiven. It does not follow because God ties anything to something else that it's the something else that produces the thing. <laughs> All right? That's, that's a fallacy. 
We're not saying here that your forgiveness is a work that produces God's forgiveness. But what we are saying is that God set up his economy in such a way that when you forgive, he forgives. When you don't, he doesn't. It could not be clearer, right? And not only that, but he explicitly talks about the anger of the master. And then he says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. So it must be that God's capable of anger. Because Jesus tells the story, he chooses his words carefully, and then says, this is how God will be to you if you don't forgive. So clear out all the cobwebs of cheap grace that infect your mind as a Protestant or as a Reformed Protestant. Get rid of it. And make room for the word of God again. And realize that forgiveness is a very serious thing. And that God is the one that's made it that way. I don't stand before you this morning as a pastor who you're angry at or I'm angry at you and I'm processing. That's the, that's the pathetic nature of postmoderns. You know, everything is personal. No, this is not personal. Yeah, it is personal between me and God. It is very personal between you and God. But this has nothing to do with whether I like you or you like me and how you might think about me when this sermon's over. I was talking to a man this last week who had gone before Presbytery, which is an assemblage of elders and pastors, to be examined so that he could be a pastor. And they asked him about his positions on various things. And and then they hit something that they hadn't known was there. It was a speed bump, you know. They found out that he held a position that you can argue from Scripture for, But boy, it was very, very tense because all of them had a different position and they were wondering how they were going to live together. If they had a pastor in their midst who didn't agree with them on that issue, it was not an issue of basic doctrine, it was an issue of practice. And uh, so they weren't sure they were going to allow him to be a pastor in the presbytery and I said to them, to him that the next time he meets with them, because they have a meeting and then they all go off for a cooling off period, <laughs> and then they meet again a few months later. And I said to him, before he meets with them again, what, what he ought to prepare to say to them is, look, this is my position. This is what I believe scripture teaches. Don't press me to give it up, because if I give it up, what good am I to my people? If every time my people or you guys disagree with me, I say, okay, all right, I was just kidding. What good am I? I'm supposed to be a shepherd. I'm supposed to honor the word of God. And so here we come to a text, and if I were to just preach a sermon on how wonderful God's forgiveness is and how he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west... And you were to go from this place uplifted. What good am I? I'm no good to you. So I want you to hear clearly that God ties his forgiveness to ours. Don't weasel out of it. Don't use cheap grace to remove it. Don't say that I must have become Roman Catholic this last week. Nope. God, you heard it, ties our forgiveness by him to our forgiveness of others. All right, so we start with that premise. Now, 
Is this graceful to us? Oh, it's so graceful to us. And why? Well, the reason it's graceful to us is that when Thomas Watson is writing about this particular petition of the Lord's Prayer, and Thomas Watson is centuries old, old Puritan, when he writes about this, he talks about dueling. Did I wake you up? Now, what's dueling? Well, dueling was how honorable men or dishonorable men used to solve very serious problems between each other. If a guy insulted you or insulted your wife and you wanted to defend your own uh, honor, what you would do is, like, throw a handkerchief down or slap him with the back of your glove or something. And then, you know, you'd go through this ritual thing that you'd say to him and he'd say to you, and then you'd come up with seconds and you'd choose a time and you'd usually hide it because it was usually illegal. And then you'd you'd choose a weapon and then say it was, you know, guns. You'd show up early in the morning, you've seen it in movies, and you'd stand with your backs to each other and you'd take 10 paces and then you'd turn around and you'd try to kill the man that had insulted your honor. And so Thomas Watson, as he's writing about our duty to forgive one another, he talks about duels. And he says this, he says, Consider the folly of challenging another to a duel. It's a little, it is little wisdom for a man to redeem his credit by losing his life and to run to hell to be counted valorous. So you can't overlook an offense, you can't forgive it, You're given over to bitterness. Your honor is so precious to you that what? Well, that you die to defend your honor. And he says, this is stupidity. It's evil. Homer says, revenge is sweet as dropping honey. And so... Thomas Watson writes about duels. So a few years ago, I was preaching on this text at a former church by the name of Prince. That's what we refer to it as sometimes, the church formerly known as Prince. (laughs) And in that church, we had a number of attorneys. And so when I got to this text and to dueling, I said, now, we don't duel today. What do we do? We go to court and we litigate. And I said an awful lot of what happens in courts in America today is simply one person working out his or her bitterness towards another through the court system. Well, you you would have thought that I had said something against apple pie and motherhood because the next day I was barraged in my office with mad attorneys. The first one was a woman, and she came in and she... She said, I have never, ever seen that in practicing law. I'm not involved with people who are filled with bitterness. I'm involved in serious practice of law. She didn't say that final thing. She just said there was not bitterness. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I know a lot of attorneys, and I think your experience is uh, not quite true. And uh, I don't know what I said to her, something like that. She was a friend. Then a guy came in. He was with Bunger, Hillier, Lyons, Mallory, Clendenning, and Robertson. <laughs> and he said the same thing. No, 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 no. 
And so apparently there's no dueling today and there's no bitterness in our court system and everybody that practices law is just lily white, right? Not talking about races. Now, to her credit, a little while later, that woman came back in my office and she said that when she went to the firm that day after meeting with me, the very next case she was assigned was unbelievable. And she said God sent that case to her to rebuke her because it was nothing except bitterness. Okay, now think. If you forgive other men their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive. If you do not forgive other men, your heavenly Father will not forgive. So Thomas Watson, centuries ago, is writing about this, and he writes about duels. So I'm preaching on this, and I preach on litigation and lawyers being used to work out bitterness on the part of individuals. I mean, for heaven's sakes, have you ever, ever been involved in a divorce? It's mind-boggling. All right? And so right now, all of you are feeling pretty good because you've never done a duel, and you've never filed a lawsuit against your next-door neighbor, right? And so you've escaped the application of this text, right? But you know something? In this room are many of you who have spent your lives being a victim and bearing a grudge, resentment, and bitterness against mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, cousins, against wives and husbands, some of you against children. And man, our culture is absolutely in bondage to victimhood. We live in a victim culture. And it's so sick that people think that's good. People think it's good to cultivate in you an awareness of how your father failed you. And it's like, duh. It's the stupidest thing in the world because every father fails you. And you say, oh, but you don't know how my father failed me. I say, you're right, I don't. But give me five minutes with you in my office and I can probably tell you how. Because it just will ooze out of you. And so let me ask, the guy that kills or is killed in a duel, the guy that goes to court and litigates for years... And you, who's better and who's worse? Who's more in bondage to their bitterness and lack of forgiveness? The person that goes through their entire life excusing everything they do because of how they've been done wrong to, or the person that has the honor of showing up early in the morning and shooting or dying? Who's more in bondage? I mean, think about it. Who's more in bondage? I think the bondage that ends quickly is much smaller than the bondage that goes on for all of life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so you live in the midst of a victim culture where everybody wants you to be a victim. They want you to be a victim because of your race. They want you to be a victim because of your socioeconomic level, how much money you have. They want you to be a victim because you're a woman. They want you to be a victim because you've had an abortion. 
They want you to be a victim because you couldn't have an abortion. They want you to be a victim because you have an autistic child. They want you to be a victim because you got fired unfairly. They want you to be a victim because you're stupid. They want you to be a victim because you're ugly. They want you to be a victim because your husband left you, because he committed adultery, because your wife committed adultery. And man, until you have that victimhood, and you got to come up with the best one you can, you know, like for instance, if your father abandoned you when you were young, don't focus on the fact that your mother liked Brussels sprouts and made you eat it, because that's trivializing victimhood. You want to Choose the particular victimhood in your life that can be the ordering principle for your life. And it would be good if you could get money out of it. And then milk it, baby. Milk it. Because that's what it means to be an American. Or that's what it means to be educated. You can get scholarships, you can get grants, you can get housing, you can get most of all the sympathy of your pastor. And then he'll just preach grace, 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 week after week, because these poor people just need to be encouraged, because they're all victims. Now listen, if I told you that's pathetic, would you agree? This is pathetic, right? I mean, would everybody agree that it's just kind of pathetic? I mean, really, to go around saying, you know what? I had this guy come and visit from Mexico, and he was a pastor, and he just spoke almost no English whatsoever. And I asked him to preach. So he got up, and he preached, and his sermon was very simple. I can't do it the way he did it. If Taylor had heard it, Taylor could repeat it, accent and everything, but I'm not good at that. I just remember it. Taylor wouldn't remember it. <laughs> it's a joke. That's my son, so I can... So anyhow, this guy gets up in front of us, and he says, you know, I come to America. I look in Christian bookstores. Every book in Christian bookstores is like, do this and don't do that, or it's, my mama don't love me. All the books, my mama don't love me. Well, I just started laughing, giggling kind of nervously because I was wondering where this was going, you know. And he said, you know, talk to a man. My mama don't love me. Go to the bookstore. Open the book. My mama don't love me. And he says, it's all anybody in this country thinks about is my mama didn't love me. And then he said, down in Mexico, we have outhouses that we use. And he said... If you know anything about outhouses, you know that you don't take a stick, push it down the hole, and stir things up. <laughs> because it's stick. He says, a man's 42 years old. This is what he actually said. A man's 42 years old. He's, my mama don't love me. Stirring and stirring and stirring. And that's us. That's us. And it is pathetic. But it's worse than pathetic. It is the absence of forgiveness. 
It is the absence of forgiveness. That's what it is. If we're stirring and stirring and falling in love with the stink, it's because we think that we're righteous and they're evil and we can spend our entire life pointing to how evil they are and we never have to look at the fact that actually, truth is, I am evil. And what they've done to me is nothing compared to what I've done to my children. And it's microscopic compared to what I have done to my heavenly father and to his son and to his spirit. Quenching him, quenching him, quenching him, quenching him. Do you understand? You stir that up. You focus on how you've been done wrong. It stinks. You love the stink. You say, hey, come over and smell my stink. And it's because you're self-righteous. And you can't bear to look at your sin because it stinketh moreth. And so you point to other people's stink. And it's the old, look at the birdie routine. And you spend your life and you order your life according to how you've been done wrong. And it's pathetic But that's the least of the problems. The real problem is you never face your sin. Because I guarantee it, if you want to learn how to forgive, it's very simple. And that is cultivated awareness, a deep awareness of your sin against the holy God. And if you look at who you are, not anybody else, who you are. And if you need help, come to me, I'll help you. You look at who you are and your sin against God you're not going to spend time thinking about how you've been done wrong. You're not going to stir the pot. Because all of a sudden, what's going to wash over you is the fact that you have offended a holy God. And he is wrathful against all ungodliness, particularly yours. And you have a choice. You either quit claim... You either acknowledge who you are without any ifs, ands, or buts. And you fall on your face before him and confess your sin and then ask him to cover you with the blood of Jesus. You either do that or you're going to go through your life pointing out other people's sin. I mean, Benny, you can make a life of it. You know, you've got a lousy father. And he's a real sinner, Benny. That that man, Oscar Wilde, you remember what he says? He says, children begin by loving their parents, then they judge them. Rarely do they forgive them. And so, listen, brothers and sisters. How about this? How about we believe scripture when it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Stop, stop ordering your life according to what you're angry at God about. He done you wrong. No, God has not done you wrong. He done my wife wrong. No, God has not done your wife wrong. He done my brother wrong. No, 
God has not done your brother wrong. God is God. God is God. And you don't judge him. And once you come to faith in God, you order your life according to the knowledge that he is our father and every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, falling down from the father of the heavenly lights. And then you begin to see how the most difficult things in your life are the most precious treasures in your life. (laughs) And I know what I'm saying. And I know whom I'm saying it to. I guarantee you. That the very place where you have had a child that has been lost, that's died. I had three siblings die when I was a little kid. Where you have lost a husband, you've lost a wife, where you've lost a job, where your father was absent, where your father said horrible things to you. Those very things are things that turn you to God. Because nothing else can satisfy you. Nothing else can satisfy you. And the quicker you get to the point of turning to your heavenly father, who will never leave you, never forsake you, who is honesty personified, it's a perfection with him, who's never flippant in his discipline, who's never malicious, who's never punitive, who never takes delight in showing you can't do it as well as he can, who promises that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who provides it bountifully without finding fault. That's a quote from Scripture. The minute you see all these things drive you to despair of the righteousness of your father and of the righteousness of your mother and your pastor and your elders and your teachers and to turn to God and to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, I desire nothing. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is my portion. That's David, King David, Psalm 73. My heart is not at rest until it rests in thee. You see, all these things are God pruning all of our desire to have gods on earth and to turn to God. Thank God you know the failures of your father. Your wife, your mother, your son and your daughter. Because now you can go to God Receive his forgiveness and then cultivate your awareness of God, your need of God, your awareness of your sin, your need of his forgiveness. And then you know what happens? What happens is that you become the most forgiving person on the face of the earth. This is what happens. You just forgive. You go around forgiving. Because why? Because at the front of your brain is your sin and God's forgiveness of that sin. And so when other people ask for forgiveness, you say, I forgive you. And you do it with joy because it's such a kick to think of how God has forgiven you. So listen, you can either have American culture, which is victim culture. It's pathetic, but that's the least of its problems. It's damnable. It will never allow you to be forgiven by God. You can have it if you want, but it leads away from God down the broad road to hell. Or you can have awareness of your sin and the blood of Christ, and then you can become the most forgiving person on the face of the earth. You no longer 
Count your curses. You no longer stir the pot, but you count your blessings one by one. And you see what God has done. So which will it be for you? Elders? Pastors? Titus II women? Young men and women? You're going to live by God? You're going to live by the old American, Mama, Mama, don't love me. It's pathetic. It's damnable. Let's pray.